and welcome to the Sharpening Report. I am your host, Josh Peck. We welcome to the show Timothy Alberino. He has been on a two-year hiatus, and he has decided to come back full force with a full series of interviews right here on the Sharpening Report. You can only get these here. And uh, I actually haven't done a series like this since Mark Flynn's book, Forbidden Secrets of the Labyrinth, was released. That series was very well received, and I believe this one will be as well. We are going to talk with Tim um, in full about everything having to do with this book. It is a four-part series, and you will get a new installment a new part of the series every single day starting today until the series is over. So make sure you stick around and check out this channel uh, every day at this exact same time for the next installment. But if you, if you cannot wait and you want the entire series right now, we have it available at dailyrenegade.com. This will also be the place to go if YouTube decides to delete any of uh, this interview series, any of the videos in it, or the whole thing entirely. Dailyrenegade.com will have the series in full. You can go there, you can become a member right now, and you can see the entire series. It is available. So uh, head on over to dailyrenegade.com. A membership is only $10 a month or $100 a year. Make sure, uh, if you can, to get the $100 a year because then you get two months for free. Just pay for it once. You don't have to think about it again. So it's a great deal. And if you go head on over there right now, then you can get the entire series. You don't have to wait till tomorrow or the next day or the next day. You can watch the whole thing right now. DailyRenegade.com. All right, so without further ado, let's start our conversation with Timothy Alberino. Here is part one. Timothy Alberino, my good friend. How are you doing? Very well, Josh. Very nice to be with you after, what, two-year hiatus. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's really good to see you, good to talk with you again. I know the last interview that we did, uh, it was a while ago, but we talked for about three, three and a half hours. And before YouTube deleted my channel in TSR history, I believe that was the most popular, well-received interview that I, I had. So it's unfortunate that YouTube deleted it, but we got a backup plan for this. We now have Daily Renegade. So if YouTube deletes this one too, it'll be backed up on the website. But yeah, it's good to talk with you again. Likewise. A lot of people have been wondering what has been going on. Where have you been the past two years? All over the place. Um, I certainly haven't been idle. For the last couple of years, I've been working on two pro two main projects. One, of course, is the was my book. Uh, I did a lot of research and some intensive writing for that book, and that's obviously finally finished. And also, I've been filming a television series, oh. a new series. That's been a lot of work, and I was uh, overseas for six months. I was on several expeditions and doing all kinds of uh, exciting things. Um, a lot of what we did was in Peru. This is all different from the True Legends stuff. This is a whole different project. Really, it's a television show for network, network television or streaming platform. I do have a lot of details about it, but I'm not at liberty yet to announce uh, the details of that show. But I can tell you that I'm working with Gary Haven. Gary, is, uh, Gary and I have partnered up, and we've made some incredible discoveries. Stay tuned for that sometime in the future. That's amazing. Do you have any idea of like a release date or general time when people might expect it? No, there's a long story uh, related to this project. I'll tell you in brief, it, it began as a treasure hunt, actually. It was a big group of us in Peru, and we had a crew of 20 people, more than 20 people, actually. Jamie Walden was in Peru with me and some other people uh, that the audience might know. And we were originally shooting for a treasure hunting show, and we ended up pivoting 
because we got we ran into some precarious situations uh, with the Peruvian mob, and we had to switch directions and, and film a different kind of show that we had not anticipated. And I literally had to rewrite this whole show and switch gears. And so we ended up doing something else. We went, I'll tell you one thing. We went up and we made a fascinating discovery of, of what we think is one of the legendary lost cities of the Inca. Oh, wow. In the Andes. So that, that's, that's about as much as a tease as I can give you. <laughs> I don't know if you're at liberty to say, has a network uh, pick, picked it up or is this something you're releasing by yourself? Or It's a long story. We had a network on board. And it was going to be on network TV actually last month. It was going to air prime time. And uh, that fell through under some very strange circumstances. So, so Gary and I have decided to take matters into our own hands. And we're now producing, we're just going forward with the production of the show ourselves. That's what I've been working on. I'm doing a lot of editing. I've directed it. I'm editing it, hosted it. And uh, so that's in the works. And I can't tell you where that's going to land yet, but I can tell you that it's, it's exciting. It's going to be very compelling and a very powerful show. You showed me a little teaser of the intro uh, a few days ago, and it looks phenomenal. I'm not going to tell anybody what's in it, but it looks phenomenal. It's definitely something I would watch. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching that because I know people are wondering, people have asked me, uh, are you and Steve Quayle still working together? Uh, no, Steve and I decided to part ways about two years ago um, because we're both kind of just really uh, engaged in our own projects now. Steve's got all kinds of cool stuff going on and I've got cool stuff going on. So uh, we just decided that it would probably be better for us to focus on our own projects. That was about two years ago. I know Steve's continuing with the True Legends conferences and 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 all of that, and, and I encourage everybody to follow him, continue to support him and follow him. He's got great stuff. Good deal. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so we are here to talk about your brand new book, and I know this has been a long process, uh, and thank you for sending me an advanced copy of it. It's, it is it is really, really good. It's it's truly amazing. Um, and when I, I, I told you a little bit before the show, but as, as I was reading it, it really reminded me of Mark Flynn's book, uh, Forbidden Secrets of the Labyrinth. Not not in terms of content, but in terms of uh, writing style, how one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Um, and it really all builds on the foundation that you lay in the beginning of the book, which is why for the audience, audience is going to be excited about this. Uh, Tim and I have decided to actually do a series of interviews on this book, just like we did years ago with Mark Flynn, because his book really called for it. Well, Tim's book really calls for it as well. So this is obviously part one. And uh, so let's get into the book. I know this took you a long time to put together. I remember a time when you said you were uh, beginning to reach a different conclusion than uh, you thought that you were going to when you first began to write it. And I've certainly been there myself with pretty much every book I've ever written, I think. Uh, what, ha, what has the writing process been like for you, especially with this being your first book? Well, let me say that, and I, I write this in the beginning of my book in the uh, a note from the author. Um, this book actually began on the bank of a tributary to the River Masan, which is a tributary to the Napo, which is itself a tributary to the Amazon. And I can remember I was 18 or 19. I don't remember if I was 18. I think I was 18. Um, can't really remember if I was 18 or 19. I was somewhere in that age range, um, pacing on the side of this smaller river. Sada was the name of it, the, the River Sada. One morning I woke up and I began to contemplate the Garden of Eden. I began to contemplate uh, Adam and Eve. It, well, not a hard thing to do when you're in the middle of the Amazon. I really began to understand the gospel in a different way. 
and, and understand what it means to be a human being, what it means to be Adam, essentially. And that's where this book began. That's literally where this began for me. And so that question, what does it mean to be a human being, uh, has been percolating in my mind for, for years. And this book is the culmination of, of, of these, these different tracks of thought that I've been having um, at different stages of in my, in my life. And they've, and, and, and they've, all, they've all converged in this book. And I think that will become apparent to people if, if they read it. In the course of writing this book, I realized that in order to tell this story that I was unfolding to get to the end game, and the, uh, re revolving around the, the, the notion of, this, of the birthright, the last chapter of the book is called Jacob and Esau. And that was the end game for me. That was where I, where I knew I wanted to get. I didn't realize that to get there, I was going to end up going all the way back to the beginning all the way back to the creation of mankind and indeed even further back into the remote past, the unknowable past, the pre-Adamic past. Um, and it's, it's when I went back to the beginning and I started working my way forward that all that, that those contemplations that I had in the jungle started surging back into my mind. I had not planned on writing the things that I, that I began to contemplate, you know, back when I was, uh, 18 years old in, in the Amazon, and it suddenly just started coming out of me. And so that was surprising to me. And I spent the first four or five chapters, um, probably four chapters, writing about writing about the beginning of mankind and, and the, 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 what happened in the Garden of Eden, what Eden may represent. I have a very, I would say I have a very unique take on what Eden represents. Um, and so all of this stuff just started coming out of me. So the book, to answer your question, the book ended up being uh, it ended up being a lot broader in scope than I had originally intended. I found the same thing when I was reading it that around uh, like right after the chapter four mark, like that first section really lays the foundation of the book. And that's why I wanted to focus on specifically that part uh, for this interview. Of course, we can go into other areas. It doesn't matter. But uh, but to lay that foundation down is really important uh, with how the rest of the book is written, because you start off talking about uh, something that I, I think it's almost cliche to say, but nobody believes it. You know, man is not the center of the universe. You know, it's, it's cliche to say that, but nobody believes it. Nobody lives like that. Nobody That's actually right. uh, recognizes how true that is and sits down and thinks about it. And you start off the book like this, and it's amazing. I, I actually had some new thoughts of my own because of this. From our human perspective, what role do you see man playing? And in the eternal perspective of God, our creator, what role does man have? Are these two roles different? I guess the best way to answer that question is to define what I mean by birthright and what I mean by dominion of the earth. Because as I define in my book, the birthright of Adam, the, the birthright of the human species is dominion of planet earth. That is our birthright. And I believe that I, I, I prove that with, with the text of scripture, that that is in fact uh, why Adam was created. See, Adam wasn't, Adam wasn't created and then given a purpose. Adam was created for a purpose. And those, those are very distinct concepts. Uh, it, because the one is, is kind of whimsical when creating this new being, this new, this new uh, creature in the cosmos of creation, uh, mankind, creating him and then figuring out what am I going to do with him, right? As opposed to 
there is a there's a purpose here, and I'm going to create mankind to fill this purpose. There's a there's a task here. There's a role, and we need to create a new kind of creature to to fulfill that role. And I believe that is the depiction of the creation of Adam, the biblical perspective of, of, of how Adam was created. He was created for a purpose, not created and then given a purpose. And that's very, very important. Um, and his purpose, in a nutshell, well, I would say there's there's two primary, primary aspects to, to our purpose. You know, when I say Adam, Adam is us. And Adam has two primary purposes, had two primary purposes. The first, he lost. And the second remains, and it's going to remain, I think, until 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 the very end when he's going to lose it, when we're going to lose it. The first is to be a part of the family of God. Adam was created as a sibling in the family, and that's why Adam is called a son of God. And the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth uh, goes all the way through Jesus's genealogy in one version: Jesus the son of Joseph, or Jesus the son, the, the son of Mary, and then the son of so and so and the son of so and so, all the way back through to the uh, to the antediluvian world and the, the antediluvian patriarchs, you know, working its way all the way through the son of so and so, the son of so and so, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, and so we have this lineage as 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 the as the offspring of Adam that that traces all the way back to to our original progenitor Adam who was a son of God and so Adam was created to be a part of the family in fact the language of scripture is familial it's familial the the the, the vernacular of our relationship with the father is 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 framed in those familial terms and the way that we relate to our father who is in heaven, the, the, the way that we relate to each other who are in the faith, the brethren. And so we know that uh, because of the testimony of scripture, we know that mankind was created to be with the father in the father's house. And this is, of course, the parable of the prodigal son, which we can get into later. Um, that's the primary purpose. Adam was 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 created to be a son in the father's house, not the only son, by the way, but a son, the younger son, the younger sibling. The second purpose was because Adam was a son of God, he was part of the of the you might you might consider it the royal house. And Adam was given was tasked mandated with the dominion of the earth. The governance of planet Earth, and so uh, Adam was was assigned, was given the title deed of planet Earth, and was supposed to govern the Earth, and and, and indeed today is still supposed to govern the Earth. So, the birthright of Adam is dominion of the Earth, and so those are the two primary reasons that Adam was created. He was created first for fellowship in the family of God. And second, for governance of the earth. And those two themes are laced all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And I and I follow that thread all the way in, in my book from the first chapter to the last chapter. And so it becomes very apparent, you know, when you read the scriptures, how Jesus says that we're going to become like the angels in response to a question 
Uh, the woman lost her husband, several men before she died. And whose wife would she be in heaven, basically? And Jesus's answer was that in heaven, no one is married or, or given a marriage. And he said, but you will be like the angels in respect to their immortal condition, but not just in respect to their immortal condition, also in respect to their estate. Jesus says that we were given power to become sons of God and that we would that we would become like the angels being sons of the resurrection, he says. So the power to become a son of God, and we can loop back to this later on if we decide to talk about something um, further down the line here that I think is really crucial. If it, we're given the power to become the sons of God through the resurrection. The resurrection is the power. So when Jesus says that we've been given power to become the sons of God, it is the resurrection that effectuates the new birth in Christ and that restores us to the family. There are so many things that we can unpack there, and you certainly do it in your book. Um, and while I was reading it, I, I actually had to take notes and things because there, there was a lot of new things that I hadn't thought of, but the way that you lay it out, it makes sense. Um, talking about some definitions here, uh, angels, extraterrestrials, aliens, uh, how do you define these words in birthright? I define those words exactly according to their traditional definitions. Um, uh, an extraterrestrial, I don't have it in front of me exactly, I don't remember exactly what I wrote, uh, but an extraterrestrial uh, is is basically, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sentient entity, if you're talking about conscious beings, beings, whose provenance, whose origin is not planet Earth. So if you have an entity in the, in the cosmos of creation, if you have an entity whose origin is not the Earth, then that entity is by definition extraterrestrial. Extra meaning not of the Earth, and then terrestrial the Earth. So they're they're not from the Earth. They're extraterrestrial. They're from somewhere else. So their origin is not planet Earth. Um, and then the the definition for for alien. Again, I don't remember exactly how I put it in the book, but it, it would be something along the lines of something approximating. Um, an entity that is not human, that is not us. So any any entity that is not human, that is not the offspring of, of Adam and Eve, is by definition alien to the human race. Um, and of course, it, we're talking about uh, conscious beings. In the context of, of my book, we're talking about conscious, sentient beings. So based on those two definitions, extraterrestrial and alien, then I posit the question, does the Bible introduce us does it introduce any such beings that, that might be defined as extraterrestrial and alien? And the answer is, of course, unequivocally, yes, resoundingly, yes. We have this class of beings who are called angels. And by the way, angel is a very, um, uh, angel is a, is, is a somewhat nebulous designation because it doesn't really, it doesn't tell us, give us any information about the, um, about the nature of, of the beings that it designates, because the word angel, uh, malak in the Hebrew and angelos in the Greek, it just means messenger, an envoy, one who is sent. And in fact, that very same word, angel, that we translate as angel, is used in several other places in the Old Testament to describe human beings who are operating in the function of messengers um, or envoys. So it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not exclusive to heavenly beings, the term angel. Although when it's used in scriptures, most of the time it is referring to heavenly beings. Right off the bat in chapter one, in fact, the first chapter of my book, and this caused a lot of controversy, I noticed, 
last time you and I talked, there was just some real acrimony, uh, some real controversy, uh, because I used the term elder race to describe the angels. Well, if anybody wants to read my book, they better get used to it, because I use that term from start to finish. In fact, the very first chapter of my book is called, is entitled The Elder Race. And I've invented that term because, again, the word, the, the word angel is, is, um, is nebulous. And so I kind of created my own term. And it makes sense because the word elder means older. It's just another way to say older. And race, I think, is self-explanatory. So if, the, if we have an angelic race of entities that are not us, they're not human, and they're older than us, you and I can agree that both of those things are obviously true, according to the scriptures, they're not human, and they're older than us, that makes them an elder race, right? Right. It makes them an elder race. So I'm not saying anything controversial here just because people haven't heard this term in their ears yet. It's nothing controversial. It's just me describing the reality of these beings in a way that is useful to me as I move forward in the book so that I don't always have to go back and, you know, or use nebulous terms like angel, I can actually say elder race as opposed to, and in contrast to, human race. We are human. They are not. We're the younger ones. They're the older ones. And again, to clarify, they are not human. They're not us. And that makes them, by the way, and they're not from the earth. We know that. They shouted for joy when the earth was created, according to the book of Job. Therefore, they are extraterrestrial and alien. And, and, you know, whether people like it or not, I mean, that's the, by definition, that's what these entities are. And I'm not saying that they're gray aliens with the big black eyes or anything like that. That's a totally different situation. Uh, in fact, I think that we look very much like them. So these are not grotesque beings. In fact, these are sons of God. They're part of the family. Some people might might recognize a little hat tip to J.R.R. Tolkien here. Because uh, in the in the in the in the I always I always pronounce this pronounce this wrong the Silmalarian is that is that what is it the Silmalarian I have uh, no idea <laughs> well I read it and I can't remember the, I can't I, I never pronounce it properly um, but he he designates the elves as the Eldar and Tolkien obviously was drawing he, he obviously was viewing the Bible from this perspective that there's the human beings who are the younger race and then there's the Eldar so. Um, I, I just curious if anybody picked up on that. If not, that's that's a little little hat tip to J.R. Tolkien there. Um, so well, you the, explained the, it in a footnote too. So we, even if anybody, if they didn't catch it, you have it right there in the footnote. Oh, and by the way, thank you for putting your footnotes right on the page instead of endnotes in the back of the book, so I don't have to flip around. <laughs> that is one of my biggest pet peeves when I read a book is I hate having to stop and flip to the back of the book. It completely breaks up your your flow of reading. So I absolutely I determined I'm going to put the footnotes right at the bottom of Fiverr. I let Mike Heiser does that too in his uh, book, and I really appreciate that. And something that I thought was really interesting, the way that you you did this. You talk about the, the prodigal son parable. And now I, I've heard the interpretation before, and I really like it because it, it fits about, you know, angels and, uh, you know, being the older brother, the younger brother is us as humans. And, uh, you know, you have God, the father and everything. And it all, it all fits really well. Uh, but then most of us breeze over the servants and you you deal quite a bit in your book with the servants. So can you tell us um, what what is this? In case there's somebody out there that hasn't heard the parable, what what is this parable? And uh, who are the characters? And who do you define as as the servants and why? So the parable of the prodigal son, I think, is one of the most imperative par- parables to understand. 
And of course, it's a parable of Christ, and, and, and Jesus relates this parable to the prodigal son. I think everybody's familiar with it. So I'll just give people a cliff note version. There's a father who has this household. You know, you might envision it as a royal household because the, the father is apparently pretty wealthy, and he has at least two sons in this household. And uh, there's an older son and a younger son. And the and these sons, this is it, and this is important, Josh. These sons have a co-inheritance in their father's house. They have a co-inheritance in their father's house. They're both sons, right? So as the sons of the father, they ha- they both have an inheritance of his estate, right? So they start off in their father's estate, and they have an inheritance in their father's estate. And the younger son uh, decides that he wants his father to give him his inheritance now, whatever that would be, you know, sheep or, or cows, whatever that would have been in that in, in the context of that parable, so that he can go and basically live it up in the world. And so his father grants him his request. He gives him his inheritance. And the son, the prodigal son, goes out and he squanders his inheritance. In other words, he sells the goods that were in his inheritance. And he goes and he squanders the money uh, on debauchery. And he ends up in squalor. And he ends up in, in in such a degree of squalor that he actually becomes indentured to a swine herd. And the swineherd is an archetype of Satan. And he ends up eating the slop of pigs because he's so poor. So he's keeping pigs for the swineherd, feeding the pigs and eating the slop of pigs because he's so poor. He's so destitute. And he realizes in this in, in, in his depravity, he realizes that even the servants in his father's house uh, are living much better than him. That, that the servants at least have food and a roof over their heads and, and are living in, in a much more luxurious lifestyle than he is eating a slop of pigs. And so he decides that he's going to return to his father's house and, and beg his father to take him back, if only as a lowly servant, not a son anymore. He's forfeited that. Just take me back as a servant. And so he determines to do this. And he's under the impression, I think we can infer from the, from the parable, that, that his father is going to be uh, exceedingly angry with him for squandering his inheritance. And so the prodigal son makes his way back to the father's house, expecting his father to be, to be angry. But he is shocked to find that instead of his father being angry, his father is waiting for him at the door. And when he sees him coming from afar off, he runs out to meet him and he embraces him and he kisses his neck. Which is, of course, the the a reception, an unexpected reception, and and rather than rather than taking him back, begrudgingly taking him back as a servant in his house, he receives him again as his son, brings him back into the house, clothes him with a with a clean robe, clean garments, and new sandals on his feet, which is representative of the resurrection and the righteousness of Christ, and puts a ring on his finger. That's the seal of his house, the father's house. In other words, the son is brought back into the family. Ring goes on the finger. He's he's a full member of the family again. New garments. So people are beginning to pick up the gospel here in this story big time. And and there's a fatted calf that's that's slain and and so that they can have a feast and a party. And and the servants are um, he, the father instructs the servants to throw this banquet. And then you have some commentary from the older brother. Was a little bit was a little bit ticked off because his commentary to the father was, 
You never slaughtered a fatted calf for me. You never threw me a big party and I never left. I was always here with you, here with you in the house. He goes off and spends his inheritance, uh, squanders his inheritance and, and comes back and you're throwing him this big party. I've always been here with you. And uh, and so there's the, there's there's basically four characters. There's, there's actually five. You have the father, his two sons, the older brother and the younger brother. You have the swine herd, again, an archetype of Satan. And you have the servants. And I submit to you, Josh, and I make this case in my book, that this is a, an amazing depiction of the gospel. And I think it goes over a lot of people's heads. This is, an, well, I think, one of the most, I think this is probably the clearest depiction of the gospel in, in, in the scriptures. This parable is actually depicts the gospel better than I think any of the apostles could, could, could explain it. In the, in, in the epistles, in the New Testament, in Jesus' parable. And so obviously we know who the Father is. The Father is the Father, the very same Father who Jesus would pray to, our Father who art in heaven. That's the Father. So, so we know that one of the sons, now before I get into this, let me say that there is a, a superficial interpretation because um, the prophecy and, and parables and things, oftentimes they're layered. There's layered interpretations. It's not always just one. Sometimes there's multiple. In fact, I think in many cases, and I demonstrate that in my book, there's multiple interpretations and they're all correct simultaneously. Um, for example, the parable of the, of the prodigal son is certainly applicable to Israel and Judah. Right. And so in the context of Israel, Israel and Judah, of course, Judah split off, split, uh, um, Israel splintered off and so forth and and was regathered. And, and so. Um, so there is an interpretation there. But I believe the deeper interpretation as it pertains to the gospel of Christ. We are the younger brother, Adam. Adam is the younger brother. Adam is the one who squanders his inheritance. And the older brother are the other sons of God who are with the father, the, the very sons of God that the Bible designates the sons of God. So I'm not making up terminology here. You have Adam, a son of God, right? Picture Adam from the beginning before the fall. Because before people start wondering about this, Adam lost his estate at the fall. He did not lose his birthright, but he lost his estate. Okay, so uh, at the fall, Adam loses his estate. He is sundered from the family of God, which was the, which was the, the most drastic and terrible consequence of the fall. Being sundered from the family of God is ter terrible. That's our big. That's our number one problem as, as the human species. We've been sundered from the father. And, and of course, I think we all know that those of us who are believers. And so um, Adam's the younger brother. The, the other sons of God are the, are the older brother. The servants. That is, it, it, I, I remember I was writing about this in my book because I hadn't contemplated the servants either until I was writing the, copying the parable from the Bible in, into my book. And I, and I just sort of froze. And I thought, okay, I know who the sons are. That's evident. Adam was a son of God. And then there's these other sons of God. We know who the father is. The swine herd is evidently is, is apparently a, I think very clearly in our, an archetype of, of Satan. So who are the servants? Obviously there's a, there's a whole cosmology here that we don't understand. There it's the, the universe is comprised of more than, than God, angels and humans and demons. Those are basically the four categories that 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 that, that we that most Christians contemplate. There's God, there's angels, there's there's demons, and there's humans. 
and I'm here to tell you that that is woefully underestimating the the grandeur, the immensity, the complexity of God's creation. And so uh, I think there's a myriad, and we've talked about this, I think, probably half a dozen times. There's a myriad of, 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 of things out there that we have no idea about, obviously. So, um, so the servants, I think, represent a sentient entities that are are they're not the devil and they're not they're not enemies of God. They're 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 in the kingdom of heaven, but they're not the sons of God. They're not part of the family. So I had to contemplate this idea that are there sentient entities in the cosmos who are not part of the family? But are but nevertheless are sentient conscious beings. And so then you have to ask, well, who is part of the family? The Bible tells us the sons of God. Why else would we find this family, these familial terms in the Bible unless we were supposed to intended to understand them the way that we understand our families? See, how do you understand the father? How, how can we how can we understand the hierarchy of the kingdom? Well, we can understand it because every single one of us is part of a family. Every one of us. We most of us have siblings. All of us have a mother and a father. You know, not all of us know our mother and father, but all of us have a mother and father. We're either sons or daughters. And then we become, most of us end up becoming mothers and fathers ourselves. We know what a family is. We understand the language of the family. And the language of the family is not derived principally from us, from human beings. It, it pre-exists us. We were brought into the family, and then we were allowed in a, in a, in a in a remarkable show of affection and favor by, by the maker, by the father. We were privileged with the ability to then procreate our own families as, as an image, as a, as, a, as a likeness, as a shadow of, of something else, of, of the family of God. And we all know that there's a family of God. Who, what Christian would deny that there's a family of God? No Christian would deny that there's a family. Not, not any Christian that reads the Bible, that's for sure. And so we have to contemplate our story within the context of a family. I like to think of it as a royal family, a royal household. And, and so who are the servants? I guess I, I just took a very long time to say I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, you, you, you really need all that groundwork anyway to even, even begin to start to think about the question because it does open up uh, this whole broader topic, which, which we definitely will get to because obviously it plays a large part uh, in the book. Um, but before we get to there, we, we're, we, let, let, let's focus on the, the older brother, because you focus on this in the first part of your book, uh, before we get to the extraterrestrials, let's talk about some of the extra dimensionals. So one of my favorite chapters, uh, and believe it or not, for the audience, uh, we we have just now got through chapter one, and we have barely <laughs> scratched the surface. But uh, one of my favorite chapters was uh, chapter two, Shadows of Reality. And of course, th this was one of my favorites, because it deals with higher dimensions, you know, quantum physics stuff, you know, my, my wheelhouse stuff that I'm really interested in. And extra dimensional entities. What did you learn about this this strange environment called hyperspace, and how does it relate uh, to extra realities, angels, uh, the types of things that we're talking about? At the beginning of that chapter, I I, I start off with something that you and I have discussed before with uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, which is a perfect allegory 
it's 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 perfectly uh, applicable to what we're talking about because, uh, and we've talked about this before, but it's useful for people to 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 reimagine this scenario. And 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 again, I'm going to nutshell this. So this, this is a very uh, abridged version of Plato's allegory of the cave. It's in my book, and uh, in his allegory, there's uh, these individuals who. Who, from the time they're in this peculiar situation, these individuals in in, in Plato's in in this little universe that Plato creates in his mind, the, the, these individuals have a very bizarre condition. They've been living in a cave since they were infants. In fact, they're not living in a cave; they're chained up in this cave, and so their entire life, all they've been able to see is one facet of the cave, the wall that's in front of them. They have no idea what's outside the cave because the mouth of the cave is behind them. And so all they see is the wall of the cave in front of them. And so the and so their comprehension of the exterior of the exterior world, in fact, of, of reality itself is is derived solely from what they see, the shadows that they see on the wall, because Plato sets up a scenario in which behind them, you know, there's a fire and behind that fire um, there are or or. Behind them, there's there's activity happening, and then there's a fire, and so that fire is casting the shadows on the wall, um, and so everything that's happening outside of the cave, they view it in shadow on the wall, in silhouette. So they view the world, they're constrained, they have this peculiar condition that they are condemned to see the world in shadows. So this is a really good allegory for the offspring of Adam and the fall. Because of sin, we also are condemned because of the fall. We also are condemned to see the world in shadows. And so we have a problem, a problem which Paul defines. Paul talks about us seeing as if through a glass dimly or we're looking into a dim mirror, something to that effect. The the King James, I think, has it. We see as through a glass dimly. And that is, and of course, Back in the ancient times, um, even if Paul's talking about a mirror, he's not talking about the kind of mirror that we're used to. They didn't have mirrors, glass mirrors. They had obsidian mirrors. And so when you looked into a, it's a, you know, black obsidian stone. And so when you look at a black obsidian stone, if you were holding up a mirror, a, a, a obsidian stone mirror or, or polished uh, bronze or something like that. So whether it's stone or bronze or some kind of a polished metal, whatever, whatever they would have had in the Bronze Age and or in the time of Paul. Uh, you would have seen a very faint reflection of yourself in that mirror. You know, you can't think of, again, you can't think of a glass mirror where you see an exact replication of yourself or reflection of yourself. You got to think in the ancient mirror, you're seeing a a, a shadowy kind of a blobby uh, representation of yourself. But in the King James version, we see as through a glass darkly or dimly, that is explaining exactly the, the visual impairment of cataracts. That's exactly what cataracts is. Cataracts, you get a film over your eye and you're forced to see through that film. So everything you're looking at is kind of, um, you know, there's a haze over everything. It's you're seeing through a like a dirty glass, basically. Almost like scales on your eyes. Oh, scales on your eyes. Exactly. So Paul is describing what you might think of as, uh, as, as a what I call my book, a perceptual cataracts that we have. Because of the fault. In fact, Paul later goes on to to to, to explain what the remedy is that that this perception perceptual cataracts that we have, he calls the imperfect and that we're going to see this way until we put on the perfect. 
And that happens at the resurrection. So when we begin to realize that the resurrection is the rectification of the human condition, this fallen condition, this condition of perceptual cataracts and everything else, death, disease, and everything else that comes with the curse of sin, the wages of sin, um, we, we, when we understand that the rectification, when I say rectification, I mean the remedy, let's say, of our condition is the resurrection. Because when we're resurrected in Christ, we're, our, we're reset to the blueprint of Adam. So you can imagine all of our defects, all of our genetics, we're still going to be us. In fact, we're going to be more human at the resurrection than we are now. We'll get into that later. So at the resurrection, all of our defects, and I'm getting into the hyperdimensional stuff here by starting from this point. At the resurrection, all of our defects, all of our impairments, including our, 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 our perceptual cataracts, are going to be removed. You can you can picture it as 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 <laughs> you might picture it as for those familiar with uh, with Star Trek, you know uh, when they when they use the uh, when they beam people in the transport. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, you know, in a lot of those episodes, they use the transporter to filter out some kind of a disease or something and reset the person back to an earlier copy of themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a little for, for 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 the Trekkies out there that might help them understand that. And that's what happens to us at the resurrection. So all the imperfections, all of everything that is a result of the fall is filtered out at the resurrection and we're and we're remade. We're still us. We're remade, but without our imperfections, without the 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 human condition, which is which is um which is degeneration, corruption and degeneration, and ultimately death. So all of that is filtered out at the resurrection and we are going to be perfectly human. Without any defects, we're going to be Adam again. We're going to be unblemished human beings with the full potential and, 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 and the full abilities uh, that, that we were supposed to have from the beginning. And so when we understand that, we realize that Adam was created as a perfect person, perfect human being. He didn't even know sin in the beginning. He was sinless. And, and he, there, was, there was no death. He was, he was immortal. Living in the presence of God in the, in the in the in in Eden, and and it wasn't until the fall that he began to degenerate. As soon as he transgressed, he began to degenerate because he was he was divorced from the family of God. He was uh, he was expelled from the family, and where the tree of life is, where that sustenance, that life giving sustenance is, and he is. He is expelled from, from, from the house of God, like the prodigal son, although the prodigal son you know, does it of his own accord. And Adam begins to degenerate. He begins to find himself in a state of destitution, squalor, and depravity. That's us. And so part of that destitution, squalor, and depravity, because we're divorced from the family and we're now reaping the wages of sin, and you and I are now copies of copies of copies of copies of copies from Adam with all kinds of genetic defects. We have all kinds of problems, both physical and spiritual, okay? And so, one of the problems that I believe we have as the human species, fallen, is perceptual cataracts. And what I mean by that, and I'm not just talking about obviously our physical eyes, although our physical eyes are probably a lot less effective than they used to be thousands of years ago. Um, I'm talking about our ability, again, coming a long way around to answer your question, our ability to perceive the dimensional totality of created order 
is incredibly hampered by this, by this degenerate uh, copy of Adam that I'm wearing. So I believe that Adam, in his original state before the fall, was able to perceive and indeed traffic in the dimensional totality of created order, which means that he could freely converse with his older brothers, that he could freely interact in the household of God with the brothers and the servants. He was created for fellowship. And so Adam had was equipped as a human being with, I, I believe, all kinds of, of remarkable abilities, maybe some abilities that we attribute today to our comic book superheroes. Super you know, I'm not saying that he was flying around in a cape and he had lasers coming out of his eyes. But, but certainly, you know, certainly if you were to cut Adam's hand and you were to cut my hand with a knife, Adam's hand would probably regenerate very quickly. Mine would take weeks. His probably would regenerate even after the fall. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. The machinery of our biology would have been performing at peak level or, or near peak level in the antediluvian age. Okay, and now it's all clunked down and uh, uh, it's all it's all you know it's it's, it's de degraded and 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 you might envision you know the gears that are all rusted and 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 just very the whole mechanism is clunky and old. That's us. Okay, so. I wanted to lay all that before we talk about this idea of hyperspace and a hyperspatial universe in which, and by the way, hyperspace is simply a, a, a dimension of the world that we cannot see, we can't perceive. It's not a separate universe. I right. think a lot of people confuse this, that an additional dimension to the fabric of our reality is not a... Um, I'm trying to think of the, 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 the technical terminology for it. It's not a separate world. It's not an alternate universe. Right. A square and a cube exist in the same universe, but exactly. they're of different dimensions. Right. Exactly. That's it. You said it much more eloquently. And exactly. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about hyperspaces. So we're talking about spaces that, that extra dimensional spaces. They're not, it's not like going through a wardrobe and, and entering the land of Narnia. <laughs> that's different. That's an alternate universe. Yeah. It's more like, and I use this as an example in the book, it's more like an extra spatial environment that into which, in which your soul resides, for example. So it's an environment that we're already inhabiting. I make this case in my book. But one that we cannot perceive because of our cataracts, our perceptual cataracts, because of the fall. We can't perceive it, even though we're inhabiting it. And that is a distinct concept from this idea of multiple multi-dimensions or, or, or alternative universes. Those are, those are other ideas. And so I believe um, that, the, that there are hyperdimensions, that there are extraspatial environments enveloped in that, that are naturally a part of uh, nature. And the problem isn't that we can't access them so much. The problem is more that we can't perceive them. That's the problem. Um, because our consciousness, our souls reside somewhere. And I don't think it's in our gray brain matter. And I don't think it's in our spleen or, our, or, our, or, or any of our organs or intestines or something like that. I think the 
soul, the consciousness resides in an extra spatial compartment, a seat for the soul that is part and parcel with human biology, an appendage, if you will, a, a, a hyperdimensional appendage that is part of our biology that is created as the seat um, to house our soul. And it is into that compartment that I believe that demonic entities intrude. Yeah, and that, that's something that, that's come up in, in my work as well, uh, especially when I was writing a book, Afterlife, uh, because this, this notion of the soul and the spirit came up. And uh, I'm curious what you, you, you think about this. Well, actually, I kind of already know because you wrote about it. But, but uh, do we as human beings actually have an extra dimensional quality to us then? Are, are we actually cubes thinking that we're just squares? Yes, I believe so. I believe so. I think that's a, that's a great way to put it, actually, Josh. That's a that's a really great way to simplify that concept. That's a brilliant way to think about it. Absolutely. And I think that's it's part of our problem. It's part of our perceptual cataracts. Right. Remember that after the resurrection, we're going to see Christ as he is and be seen by him. Right. So all of this is going to be rectified at the resurrection. Our eyes are imagine that moment for us who believe in Christ. Who, who continue in our faith until the end and who who um, who are a part of the resurrection. We're resurrected to new life. Again, we're not resurrected to become some other kind of creature. We're not resurrected to be, you know, ethereal beings. We know exactly what we're going to be at the resurrection. How do we know? Because we have the resurrected Christ who is a, who is a, who is a, a, a prototype of what we're going to be. I mean, Christ is the example of what we're going to be. We're going to be like him. And the apostles make this vividly clear in the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. We are going to be like him. You know, and you have Christ who, who rises from the grave. He is resurrected. He is the first fruits of, 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 of many brethren, of many others, us, and, and all of those who believe in him, and all of those before him, the, the patriarchs and the, and the prophets and, 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 and the men of faith, who, who died before Christ, before Christ redeemed us on the cross. And so Christ appears to his apostles in, in, who, were, who were gathered together in, the, in, in, in a home, in a house. He appears to them out of nowhere. Boom, he just appeared like he walks through the wall, right? So here's Christ. Again, this is going to be us at the resurrection. That's how we have to look at it. After the resurrection, Christ walks through the wall or, or appears in their midst. And they're freaked out because, you know, they think he's a ghost. What does he say to them immediately? Touch me. Touch me. See that, see that I have flesh and bone. Jesus wasn't a phantasm. He wasn't a specter. You know what he was? He was a human being. He had flesh and bone. And they touched him. He had flesh and bone. And then, and then to further uh, validate his corporal reality, that he's got a physical human body, he says to them, this is intriguing to me, do you have something to eat? And he didn't say that because he was hungry. He said it because he was going to further prove to them that he was like them. He was a human being. They gave him some bread and some fish, and, he, and, it, and, it, and it says in the scriptures that he ate it in front of them. He ate it in their midst. So they're watching. Here Jesus walks through the wall, post-resurrection, walks through the wall. They're freaking out. They think he's a ghost. Then they touch him, and they can even see the marks in his hands, where the where the nails were, or in his wrists, wherever it was. And they can see that they can see that the markings of the crucifixion, 
So apparently Jesus has scars. And, and then he, he sits down and eats bread and fish in front of them. Chews on it, eats it, swallows it right in front of them for the express purpose to demonstrate to them that he is the second Adam. He's not a different creature now. He's not, he's not a, a, an ethereal being. He is the rectification of the human condition. And he's eating and drinking, and he's got, he's got flesh and blood, but yet he walks through a wall. So you have to put that whole picture together. And when you put that whole picture together, you realize that human beings were created to be a lot more spectacular than we are right now. And that we not only could perceive these extra spatial environments, but like I said, we could traffic in them. Like Christ. And so uh, the resurrected Christ. And so um, the point is that that exactly as you said it, we, we don't realize the full spectrum of uh, the dimensional totality that is encompassing us, in which we are a part. It's not a separate world. It's not a separate reality. There's not a world for angels and, and demons and then a world for us. We all are inhabiting the same world, the same universe, and, and, the, and the laws that govern it are the laws that are governing all everything um, that were established from the beginning of time. Yeah, I mean, that's the way I see it, too. And it, it was really interesting reading that chap chapter, just how, it, you know, I, I took it as confirmation because totally independent of of me, you, you came to these conclusions on your own. I mean, you were in another country, you know, living in the jungle for a while and everything. And uh, so to me, that was confirmation that, you know, we were on the right track because I, I came to similar conclusions as well. And it it's mind-blowing to think about that at some point in our future, when we're passed on from this world by rapture or death, you know, whatever whatever comes first, um, that we're going to look back. It's going to make sense, you know, then. And we'll be yeah. able to look back and say, man, that's weird that we didn't, we didn't get it, <laughs> you know. And we are going to see ourselves as, as Plato's prisoners chained up in the cave, viewing the, viewing the world, the universe, as shadows on a wall. That's how we're going to see ourselves. Amen. I, I can't wait that's for that. That's what we are. Yeah. That's what we are right now. We are condemned to see the world in shadows because of the fall. Well, I cannot wait to be unchained before we, uh, hope, hopefully before that happens, though. We have to talk about the, the, the existence of, of, well, just existence before creation, before physical creation that we think of uh, in terms of Genesis 1. There's a, there's a lot to talk about here. You definitely want to do this because this is where I'm going to reveal whether or not, whether I am Timothy Alberino or, his, or in fact, his twin, Anthony Alberino. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, I gotta meet your brother because I keep forgetting that you're a twin. I keep forgetting that about you. The only weird thing that I know about you is you put honey in your coffee. Like, how un-American can you be? Not but, anymore. I don't. You finally quit. Well, we got to talk about that in the. Uh, uh, I've been praying That's for a you, brother. In my book. I explain that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it must be one I haven't gotten to yet. You know, I've been praying that you would finally overcome that addiction, and thank God the Lord has delivered you. Let's jump right back into this. So um, 
you, you, after chapter two, you talk about uh, Genesis, how this all started. And it's, it's interesting because this is one of those things for me that every time, you know, someone brings it up, like, you know, gap theory, we have all these different theories about things. Whenever somebody brings it up, I think, okay, I, I can probably predict, you know, within the first few words, what position this person holds. Um, but you actually were able to bring out some things that, uh, that, that, that I thought was really unique and really true to the text, too. So Some of it overlaps with David Flynn's work, which is just absolutely amazing, but you, you brought out some interesting things, too. So how, how did this whole thing start? When we talk about Genesis, what actually are we talking about? God, God made a perfect creation, then an enemy developed and rebelled against God, and this might be evidenced by the existence of an asteroid belt somehow. How do all these things connect? And um, what what lines do we get from the first couple of verses of Genesis? What, what things can we actually find in there? I come from the perspective that man was not created with the universe. He was created into the universe, not with it. Into the world, not with it. Uh, whereas a lot of Christians come from the, the opposite perspective, that man was brought into existence with the universe. And so man's origin, his existence, is um, was a part of that original creation. And that, that, that is born, I believe, and in, 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 I, I explain this in the book, but that is born of, I believe, of... of of what is called the anthropocentric perspective. And the, the, the anthropocentric pers- perspective, anthropocentric meaning man-centered, um, the, the human-centered perspective of the, of the, of the universe, it, it places man at the center of all things, like the hub, like the hub in the wheel. And so a lot of Christians read the scriptures through an anthropocentric perspective. And so they cannot imagine a scenario in which in which man is not at the center of what's happening. And so born from that perspective, I believe, is the notion that man was created with the earth. Um, but I don't I don't hold to an anthropocentric perspective, and I don't believe that an anthropocentric perspective is biblical. I believe clearly the scriptures present what's called a, a Christocentric perspective. That Christ is the center of all things, not man. In other words, the Son of God is the center of the universe. He's the hub of the wheel, not us. When you begin to contemplate the universe from a from a Christocentric perspective, you can liberate your mind from from certain constraints that are necessary within the anthropocentric perspective. Actually, a lot of constraints. And once you once you once you shift your focus. And you realize that that everything revolves around the Son of God, everything. And that's not Tim Alberino's theology. That's the disciples, that's the apostles' theology that they clearly articulate in the New Testament. They say several, several apostles um, make it explicitly clear that Christ is the center of all things, that, G, that the universe was created, all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, were created by him. And through him and for him. And in him all things consist. Jesus, talking about Jesus, the Son of God. 
So there's your Christocentric perspective right there. Everything was created by him and through him. And these are all different uh, dynamics, by the way, by him, through him and for him. The universe wasn't created for us. The earth wasn't created for us. We weren't even created for us. Everything was created for him. That is the biblical, the correct biblical perspective. Man is not the center of the universe. We are not the first and we are not the brightest, the best and the brightest in terms of our biological composition, let's say. I believe that mankind showed up not at the beginning of the timeline, but somewhere along the timeline uh, of all history, known and unknown. And I believe that the beginning of that timeline is all way before the sixth day creation of mankind. And I think that this is this is clear in, in the Bible. I mean, um, if the sons of God shouted for joy when the earth was created, then obviously they existed before us. Why in the world would we think that they only existed, what, moments before us? So, so the sons of God were created, and then suddenly they start shouting for joy when they see the earth get created? That's nonsensical. It's nonsensical. I, I think what we have here are the contours of a very, very deep and unknown, unsung history, unsung past. We know nothing about it. The Bible, I believe, hints to it. And I don't believe that there is a pre-Adamic controversy. I think, I think that uh, a pre-Adamic reality is, is assumed, is presumed in the narrative of in the biblical narrative. And I find it to be a very strange thing that we try and cram everything into to fit into a time period in which we're around. Right. That that and that makes us the center of all things and the purpose of all things. And and it's just not the correct perspective. And, and, and you can unchain yourself um, from that perspective by simply Focusing instead of on Adam and, and mankind as the primary protagonist in the scriptures and instead understanding it's not us. It's Jesus. It's Christ. It's the son of God. He is the center of all things. He's the why. He, he's, he answers every question. That's why I call Jesus the singularity in my book. He is the singularity. Uh, he's the big bang. Jesus is the big bang. I mean, that's the way that the Bible describes him. Uh, both uh, Paul, John, um, that Jesus is, he is the, he is the, and for those who don't know, the, the, what's called the initial singularity in, 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 in um, Big Bang cosmology, uh, the initial singularity is that, is that infinite point, that point of, of infinite density and mass and, and, and so forth and energy that, that, that exploded and that's how we get everything that we have, which is of course absurd. The details of the, of the, the particulars of that theory are absurd. The concept is actually biblical because there is a singularity. There is a singular point from which all things are created and indeed in which all things consist. And that is the son of God. He is the singularity. He is the big bang. And so, um, and so I, that's my perspective. When I look at the scriptures, I start from there. Christ is the center of all things. And then I work my way forward. And when you begin, again, to contemplate this idea of the family, there's a family, there's a son of God, and then there's the sons of God. 
and that there's the older sons of God and then there's the younger sons of God. Well, you know, the fact that there's an older brother, how come, you know, if, if, if Jesus didn't want to convey this idea of an older brother, he could have said there were, they were, they were twin brothers or not even say that one was older and one was younger. They're just brothers. And but in reality, there is an older brother. And that that infers the passage of time. It's just these are just logical deductions and people get all up in arms. And I don't understand why. You know, if you've got a different opinion about the so-called gap theory, so what? You, you know, for me, you anchor yourself on the gospel of Christ. That's the anchor. You don't squabble about uh, uh, the pre-Adamic age or flat earth or, so, or, or, or some other uh, or some other issue that that is is not central to the gospel. Neither of those things are central to the gospel, by the way. Um, the gospel doesn't doesn't stand or fall on the age of the earth and it doesn't stand or fall on the shape of the earth. Right. That's not. The crux of the gospel. The crux of the gospel is the redemption, the reconciliation, and the restoration of Adam. That's the crux of the gospel in Christ. Uh, and and to make it anything else is 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 a bastardization of the gospel. So, um, so from my perspective, it's very clear. It's 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 abundantly evident to me. That there are, there's a whole lot of time behind Adam, and why shouldn't there be? Why shouldn't there be? And so, um, and I think that 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 there was in fact a massive conflict in the cosmos and in the, in, the, in the solar system. In fact, in this solar system, there's a massive conflict, and the Bible hints at this conflict. And, and you 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 alluded to an asteroid belt. And, and David Flynn is the one who really got me thinking about this. And uh, David is uh, was his book is really what what kind of pulled a lot of this stuff together for me. Uh, the Secret Chronicles of Mars, Sidonia. And uh, there's a, I believe that this there was a planet between Mars and Jupiter, which is now the asteroid belt. Uh, and the Bible designates this planet, I believe, as Rahab. And I don't just you know say that in passing. I actually I think I demonstrate that, and at least I, I I think I present a very strong case that that is in fact what it's talking about, and it's building on the case that that uh, Flynn and others uh, had laid before me. I just sort of expound on 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 some of that, and so I do believe that there was a massive conflict. That this conflict, um, it it. There was a, there was a, and when I say conflict, I'm talking about kinetic war. There was a kinetic war in the universe, and it was a war between the kingdom of heaven and and the insurgency, this insurgent faction that broke off and began to have conflict with the kingdom, and it erupted in a in a galactic battle or a series of galactic battles. And I think in in, in the midst of these battles, a consequence of, of of this conflict, Rahab exploded, and the explosion of Rahab reaped unimaginable destruction in the solar system unimaginable destruction laid waste um uh all of the kingdoms of the of 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 of, of that of the pre-adamic age and and, and, and when I, I i use the word pre-adamic because it's it's a very apt explanation it, it there were no humans it's pre-us so it's a very good it's a very good term it's pre-adam and and again i don't see what the controversy is i really don't you know, I, 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 I fail to see the controversy. And it's the same in, in, with this argument of how old the earth is. Right. 
Why should that be a controversy? If you think the earth is young, fine. If you think the earth is old, fine. But don't go accusing people of being heretics or not believing the Bible because they take one stance or the other. Uh, that's divisive and it's foolish. And those are the kind of things that you'll answer for. In, you know, at the end of the day, you're gonna you're gonna answer for how you treat your brothers more than anything else. Um, and uh, that was the commandment of Christ that you would love one another. Now that doesn't mean that you can't disagree. You can disagree, but you disagree uh, in an appropriate way, not accusing each other of essentially of treason, right? So, um, so the age of the earth is 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 really inconsequential to the gospel, but it's intriguing to me because it 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 really. Um, helps me to contemplate this this vast universe of time and history that is behind us, way behind us. And understand that that any civilization that was inhabiting the Earth before Adam or Mars or Venus or any of these other planets would have been like wax, it says in various places. And, and in some of those places, it's referring to Rahab, and, this, and, and so there's a connection with Rahab, and, and there's a connection to, to conflict. Okay, The mountains, they melted like wax. And that you're, you, you know, to, to melt rock like wax, that's extreme heat. And it's, and it's the kind of heat you might expect if a planet explodes, right? And there's this massive, uh, we, we can't comprehend that, that, that big of an, I mean, you know, in Star Wars, the Death Star blows up a planet and, you know, it's not like that. It's way more devastating than anything we could even depict. We can't even comprehend the, 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 the destruction that something like that would, would reap in the solar system. You know, and it might have all of the planets in our solar system, by the way, might have all been situated in the so-called Goldilocks zone. And then, boom, when that ex planet exploded, poof, they were flung out, pushed apart. Maybe, maybe that's one possibility. There's many possibilities um, regarding the position of the planets. So and just us talking about planets and the Earth and so forth is going to get a lot of people ticked off. Right. Because that's the way it is in, in, in 2020. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting, too, because the placement of the planets and how some of them uh, spin the opposite way. I mean, you know, an explosion like that would help explain Boom. some of those strange things. Yeah. There is no pre-Adamic controversy as far as I'm concerned. Right. I think it's inferred. I think it's I think it's assumed in the narrative of Scripture. And by the way, in scriptures regarding Rahab, he stills the raging sea, stilling and calming the raging sea over and over and over that Yahweh, you know, still, stills and calms the sea. And this is why people think that Yahweh is a. That Yahweh was a, a god of storms or god of the sea, right? Because he's always stilling and calming the sea, right? I don't think that's what what we're, what what the Bible is telling us that God is that Yahweh is this, you know was depicted as a god of storms or whatever. I think that stilling and calming the sea, I think, is a clear um, uh, metaphor for for stilling and quelling insurrection, right? And I think that's clear. When I say insurrection, I'm talking about rebellion. He stills the sea. You know, he put down the rebellion. When its waves rise, you still them. You shattered Rahab. You pierced the dragon. You shattered Rahab like a clay vessel. And, you know, this is, these, this is, these are martial expressions. These are, this is kinetic war. You know, this isn't like spiritual war. Again, I, I, I kind of talk about that in the book, too, because it kind of irritates me. People talk about spiritual war like it's something else. No, no, no. <laughs> kinetic war. Armageddon is a kinetic war. Armageddon is a kinetic war. And, 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 the, and the conflict that happened in the pre-Adamic past was a kinetic war, the likes of which we can't imagine. You know, you have, and I'm probably getting ahead of you, but you have 
you know, you have in the Bible, you have Jesus depicted, the Son of God depicted marching on the field of Edom, a great warrior, a warrior king who's 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 putting down the insurrection and slaying his foes, right? And and this victorious king who's marching against his enemies. And then you have the depiction of Jesus returning, you know, at Armageddon. His robe is dipped in blood. And it, once again, it's this idea that he's coming back. He's marching on the battlefield to make war with his enemies. This is not a war of just prayers and spiritual warfare or something like that. This is kinetic war, military armaments and, and armies. And I don't think, by the way, that those... Uh, that the soldiers that are returning with Christ are riding horses. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just, I have a different view. You know, I, I, I have a, um, people can take it or leave it. Um, people can, can, can think it's great or they, or they can, you know, they can call me any name they want. Uh, but uh, the, the point is that from, from start to finish, the, the, the true narrative of, of, of my book, if you want to ask me, what is your book about? My book is about the gospel of Christ. That's what my book is about. From start to finish, and, and and I think that becomes abundantly clear when you get to the last chapter. Amen. I I absolutely agree. I I, I think that's a great place to to uh, kind of wrap up uh, part one here for for this series. Um, but before before we go, where can people get your book? Where can people follow you online? People can get my book on Amazon. It's currently the only place it's available. Um, and they can they can follow me on my website timothyalbrino.com. I have a, I have a mailing list for those of you who are going over to timothyalbrino.com and looking for my mailing list. I, I gotta I gotta fix my website. I'm gonna be updating it here in a week. And the mailing list is all the way down at the bottom by the contact uh, by the by the contact form. So if you're looking for the mailing list, that's where it is. The best way to follow me right now is a mailing list. I'm probably gonna start a Rumble account at some point. I'm on Parlor. I haven't posted anything on Parlor yet. I'm on Twitter. Probably going to migrate from Twitter and YouTube eventually over to Parler and Rumble. Um, or just stay on, probably do what you're doing, stay on those platforms as long as, uh, as I can before they kick me off and then just, and then just set up shop, shop over there at Parler and, and Rumble. Yeah, definitely. That's what I've been doing. I have accounts on all of those. And while I'm learning those, I'm still dealing with the other ones. Um, but yeah, Rumble, Rumble is confusing to me. All of my videos just say analyzing like forever. It's just always analyzing. <laughs> so I have no idea what that's about. Uh, do, you, do you have any, uh, before we wrap up, do you have any final uh, words for, to you know, close out section one? Any, any last thoughts? Uh, um, what would you want most for the audience to take away from what we talked about with these first uh, four chapters? In, this, in the beginning of this conversation, and you know, maybe next time we can talk about Eden. I have some very interesting thoughts on Eden, and, yeah. and, and also the birthright. This idea of the birthright, the confirmance of the birthright, and all that, because it plays into it's the theme of the book. And again, it's part and parcel with the gospel. Um, uh, so I just this very first talk that we're having here. I think I would like people to walk away uh, with the understanding that Adam was supposed to be a part of the family. He was created to be a son of God. He was a son in the father's house with all the rights and privileges of his estate. And, and, and because of sin, fellowship was broken. And that is the reconciliation. See, Christ redeems us first because he redeems us uh, from the condemnation with the dragon, which I talk about in the book. He redeems us with his blood, but it doesn't stop there. See, because the redemption happens in order that we might be reconcile to the father and to the family because right now we're enemies of God because of sin and because of, uh, and we're condemned because of sin and we're enemies of God. Um, but, but through the cross through the redemption, we're purchased back for God so that we can be reconciled back to him 
brought back into the family. It's Christ who leads us home, by the way. And and what is and by the way, I'll, I'll, and I'll end with this. Remember, we talked about the prodigal son. Jesus, Jesus, uh, he evokes the prodigal son on the eve of his crucifixion. Most people miss this when he tells his disciples that he's going to be leaving for a while and they're not going to be able to follow him. And they say, where are you going? And, and why can't we follow him? He said, he said that he's going to his father's house and where he's going, you, you can't yet follow. And he said, in my father's house are many rooms and I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come back to get you so that you might be with me where I am. What is that? That's the prodigal son. So now we know how the prodigal son gets home. Jesus brings the prodigals home to the father's house. Jesus brings us home to the father's house. He's going to prepare our place, the place of Adam in the father's house. And then he's coming to get us, to bring us back into the family, to reconcile us to the father. And so you have the redemption at the cross. You have the, you have the reconciliation in Christ. And then you have to the family at the resurrection and you have the restoration of all that was lost because of sin. That is, there's, I don't care, there's no story that anybody in Hollywood or any author has ever written that's better than that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and any of the good ones, any of the really good ones, is really just a retelling of that story exactly. anyway. I mean, you, you can go exactly. and look at any movie that's been like, that, that everybody agrees is like really good, really classic, you know, a work of beauty. And it's always because it mirrors that same story. It is the, the original story the, that all stories are based on. Jesus is the hero of humanity. And he's the original hero. And he's the greatest hero humanity has ever known. And that's, in a nutshell, that's what my book's about. I mean, really, right there. So, so people, I think, should go back and re reread The Prodigal Son. And start to look at it as that's Adam, and and he's going home, and and he's embraced, and we know he's embraced. Why is he embraced by the Father? And then new robes are put on him. That's the righteousness of Christ that covers us. So we're being received back into the family because of Christ, and and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that is that's the hope of the believer. The resurrection is our hope. The resurrection, not 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 not. Um, escaping the tribulation or something like that. That's not my hope because I'm going to die anyway. Right. And if I was in China right now, you know, being persecuted by the by the CCP, then, you know, the rapture and all that is pretty much inconsequential to me because I'm already being persecuted. Right. But the hope of the believer, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you're born into, we all have the same hope. And it is not it. It is not in our life. It is after our death. Not that we're just going to go to heaven. No, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be that the resurrection through the resurrection through Christ. All that was lost in Adam is going to be restored to us. That's our inheritance. And by the way, it's not heaven isn't our birthright. The earth is our birthright. And that's why everything comes here. And at the end of the, at the, end of the book, I mean, that's the end of the book. Now the habitation of, of God is with Men, end of the story.
Amen. I, I certainly can't wait for that day. It's, it's going to be amazing and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for um, being on the show, Tim. It's, it's been far too long, but uh, I totally understand why. And I'm glad that you put as much work as you did into this book. I, I really do think that it's groundbreaking. I, I think that uh, th- this is going to be one of the, one of the classics kind of of our, of our age. So thank you for putting the book together. Thank you for agreeing to do this series and thank you for uh, being on, on this, uh, this, per, this first part of the, the interview. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. And thank you so much, everybody, for watching. And until next time, love you all. Take care. God bless. All right. A big thank you to Timothy Alberino for that interview. Again, this is just part one. For the next few days, we are going to be releasing uh, the rest of the parts, a new part of the interview every day. But if you just can't wait and you want the entire series now, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and become a member. You will see the entire series there and you don't have to wait any longer. So thank you so much. uh, And until next time, take care and God bless. 